Hello, this is David Sangster, lead pastor at New Life Church. Thank you for joining us today for our podcast. It's our goal to help you grow in your faith and discover all that God has for you. I hope you're encouraged, challenged, and inspired. Enjoy the message. Can you, like, can you all hear me okay? All right. That's good. So, I just want to say, first of all, how excited I am to be up here. Because I view this this act of worship, of preaching to you as a great privilege. And in some ways, it's an honor I feel like I don't deserve. But I just want to thank you all uh, for having me. And I want to thank Pastor Dave, I don't know where he went, uh, for sharing his his pulpit with me. And uh, I'm just so excited because one thing that I know for sure is that the Spirit of God is in this place this morning. And we, we could just never forget that, that when we gather here, He's here too. And so I'm just very excited. So can I pray for you? All right. Father, I thank you for this group of people that have gathered here today to hear your word, to worship you. And God, I just pray that as we go through the scripture today, people's eyes would be open and you would reveal yourself to them in a way that maybe they haven't seen you before. So I just, uh, I pray for this group And I thank you for everything that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I want to start with a little thought exercise. What happens when you're reading your Bible and you come to a passage that makes you think, should I be afraid of God? Does God get angry? Is he angry with me? The title of today's message is, Did God Really Say? And normally we would associate that question with Genesis chapter 3. The snake is in the garden. Did God really say? But in some ways that question should always be on the forefront of our minds. Because everything that we know about God is something that he has said to us. So we need to ask, did God really say? The big idea of today's message is this. Some passages in the Bible are hard to deal with. Some passages in the Bible make God seem mean, intolerant, arbitrary. But when we feel this way, oftentimes it is because we don't have a high enough view of his holiness. So let's take a few passages of the Bible that are hard to deal with. I'm sure you'll recognize these. It's going to get a little dark. In Genesis chapter 7, God makes it rain for 40 days and 40 nights, killing almost all of the life on earth. In Exodus chapter 7, the Lord strikes down the firstborn males in Egypt. In Numbers chapter 16, God calls for the ground to open up and the men of Korah go screaming to their death in the bellows of the earth. A few verses later, 250 men are incinerated by fire from heaven. In Kings chapter 2, Elisha calls out a curse on 42 children and they get mauled by bears. Right. So the Old Testament has many examples of when God seems mean, intolerant, maybe arbitrary. We see that God's wrath has killed many people in the scriptures. That's the Old Testament though, right? No. In the New Testament, we see in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they get killed for lying about donated money. And depending upon your eschatology, we get this image of Jesus coming back with a sword in his mouth, perhaps a thigh tattoo, a robe dipped in blood, 
This is scary stuff. But we have to look at the Bible in its entirety. We don't get to pick and choose which verses we want to deal with and what that means. Because God is holy. We are not. God's justice is sovereign, and ours is subjective to our perspective. So passages in the Bible are hard sometimes. But I want to show you how in one of these difficult passages, how God is always teaching us. So today's main passage is 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'll give you a second to get there if you're going to follow along. And that'll be our main text this morning. Everything else that we're going to use uh, should be on the wall behind me. And we're going to do verses 1 through 15. David moves the ark. David again assembled all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal Judah. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadad's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fir wood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there next to the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah. Makes sense. Very creative name. So he, um, David feared the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained in his house three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. It was reported to King David, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and had the ark of of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. So this is another one of those passages that's like, how do you not feel sorry for this guy Uzzah? He was just doing his thing. The oxen stumbled, and it seems like a natural reaction. You reach out, God strikes him dead. Why did God do what he did? Why did God strike down Uzzah? Verse 6 says that Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. And not to make light of this, but when I read this passage, I always get this imagery of something that happens to me. So I like to eat very much, and I like pizza. 
So imagine that you go to your favorite pizza place and you get, obviously, a medium cheese from Gino's in Granby, and it's on the seat next to you. And you're driving home, and you're daydreaming about this pizza. You want to eat this pizza. And then you look up, red light, slam on the brakes, you reach over, you grab your pizza. right? Because you don't want it to go on your dashboard. That's kind of how I was like, is that what happened here? And there's a lot to unpack in this passage. So first of all, why was David and Uzzah moving this ark in the first place? Well, the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant a few decades before this. And they brought it back to Philistine land. And when it was in that territory, it was causing the Philistines nothing but problems. Plagues, infestations of rodents, statues of their god were just randomly crumbling. So the Philistines recognize something's going on here with this ark. We got to get this thing out of here. So in 1 Samuel 6, 7 through 9, we read about what the Philistines decided to do. They said, Now then, prepare one new cart and two milk cows that have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, and put the gold objects that you're sending him as a guilt offering in a box beside the ark. Send it off and let it go on its way. Then watch. If it goes up the road to its homeland toward Beth Shemesh, it is the Lord who made this terrible trouble for us. Say what you want about Philistines, but they recognized right away how holy the ark of God was. And they knew that they couldn't be in the presence of it because watch what happens next. They send the ark to a place called Beth Shemesh and the Israelites who lived there were very happy to see it, perhaps too happy. A few verses later in 1 Samuel, the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark of God, they were overjoyed to see it. The cart came to the field of Joshua and stopped there near a large rock. The people of the city chopped up the cart. They offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites removed the ark of the Lord along with the box containing the gold objects and placed them on a large rock. That day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. So far, so good. But in classic fallen fashion, we read a few verses later. This is the theme. God struck down the people of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 people. The people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. And the people asked, who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom should the ark go from here? They sent messengers to the residents of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and get it. So it, it didn't take long for another group of people to be like, let's get rid of this thing. There's tragedy in the wake of the ark of God. 1 Samuel 7 says, so the people of Kiriath-Jerim came for the ark of the Lord and took it to Abinadab's house on the hill. They consecrated his son Eleazar to take care of it. So again, a pattern. A lot of people are being struck down. And this kind of makes us feel like God's kind of mean, right? He, he's supposed to be this loving God, but I mean, we're at a body count already. So the ark of the Lord went from Beth Shemesh 
they suffered a tragedy. So they called the people up in the next town and said, we can't have God's presence here. It's too dangerous. Why is God so upset? And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. But that's pretty much what happened here. When the Nazis look inside the ark, Indiana Jones is like, don't look, don't look, don't look. It's possible he was an evangelical. I don't, I don't know. But that, that's the image that we get. If you've ever seen that movie, just the spirits are coming out of this chest and it's killing everyone. So that's what, this is a, a serious tragedy. So now the ark of God is at a place called Abinadab's house. And that's where it stays when we pick up this story of Uzzah. And when I read that passage, when I read about what happens to Uzzah, I just feel so bad for him because it's hard to deal with God when we see him acting this way because we know that he works out all things for his glory. But what are we supposed to make about this? So in our main passage, back 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 3 says, They, the Israelites, set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart. Why does that sound so familiar? Because that's how the Philistines transported the ark. And if you're taking notes this morning, here's something I want you to write. Don't carry the ark like your enemies. There are a lot of ways that we don't get to live this life like the rest of the world. That's a good thing. God's regulations are for our protection. He is not a tyrant. And I think that the contemporary church needs to avoid this pitfall. We don't get to live like the rest of the world. So think about it like this. This didn't happen, but an angel of the Lord comes down and says, why would you put the ark on a cart? Do you really think this is a good answer? Well, the Philistines did it. Well, the Romans did it. Well, the pagans did it. The culture does it. Do you see how that sounds? Don't carry the ark like your enemies. And you might ask, why didn't God strike down the Philistines for carrying the ark that way? But I think that's kind of a loser question too because people of the church, people of God, we should know better. And speaking about people who should know better, we're going to pick on David. It's very easy to do. Um, We're going to pick on King David. Verse 5 says, David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of firwood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. David's heart was in a good place. Here's where David's heart was at. I'm going to read you Psalm 150. I love this. Hallelujah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his powerful acts. Praise him for his abundant greatness. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and flutes. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That's where David was at. He wanted to bring the physical representation of God, the ark, to the city of David, the capital but he shows a serious lack of leadership. He was out front, dancing, celebrating, but he never stopped and checked whether or not the way he was bringing the ark was a good idea. And so if you're a leader of any kind, if you're a parent, you're a coach, 
you're a supervisor, you do something here at the church. When we lead, we must do so with the utmost care for our people. And that's what David got wrong. He should have known the danger he was putting these people in. Who knows what would have happened if someone decided to take a peek inside the ark? We would have had the incident like Beth Shemeth. Verse 9 through 11 says, David feared the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom. The ark of the Lord remained in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. So now David is probably correctly pretty freaked out about all this stuff that's been happening. Lots of people dying. So his solution is this. I have to stash the ark somewhere. I can't bring it where I want to bring it. So he kind of just punts on the whole thing. So they bring it to a family in Gath, and they leave it there. And I'm not sure how that conversation went, by the way. Like, you're just this random family, and here's King David and everybody. They're coming down the road with the ark of God, and they're like, do you mind if we leave this here for a little bit? That's kind of how this went. I don't know if they told him about all the people it had been killing. Like, I just put it in the garage, you know. But then something amazing happens. The Bible says that the ark remained in that house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed's family. And that shouldn't be surprising for us to read, because proximity to God is always a place of blessing. The entire Christian life is just the pursuit of intimacy with God. Draw close to God and see if your entire house would be blessed too. This reminds us of a New Testament passage. Matthew chapter 9 says, Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, If I can just touch his robe, I will be made well. If you draw close to God, you will feel his blessings, and I guarantee you that. So we've kind of dissected this tragedy of Uzzah, and we see how these difficult passages, even in those, there's so much that God can teach us. And there's a lesson today. We have to have a high view of God's holiness. That's the tragic events of Uzzah's life. Too many people took their eyes off of how big God is, how holy he is. So we can sum it up like this. Don't carry the ark like your enemies. Leadership is about those you lead. Proximity to God is a place of blessing. We can learn all of that from a tragic passage in the Bible. But remember the question, did God really say? Did God really say, don't touch the ark? And that answer is yes. And so what I want to do is, Patrick, if you can put a picture up here, this is the Ark of the Covenant, this beautiful golden chest. And this object is a physical representation of God's glory. And I don't, the picture is a little hard to tell, but it is, the Ark is roughly 27 inches wide, 27 inches tall, about 45 inches long. So it's really not huge. And this ark is covered inside and out with a thin layer of hammered gold. So it's probably like no object you've ever seen before. And what's interesting about the use of gold here is that gold has some unique chemical properties. Gold is virtually indestructible. It does not tarnish. It does not rust. 
it is actually very dense for its size, meaning small amounts of it are actually quite heavy. But even though gold is dense, it can be hammered down into impossibly thin layers, even as few as a few atoms thick. So gold is special, it is unique, it is beautiful, durable, and rare, and that's why gold is commonly associated with wedding rings, because your love for your spouse should be beautiful, durable, and rare. The chemical uniqueness of gold also has a relationship to God because he is incorruptible. So there's this symbolism here. And we can conservatively estimate that there are at least 70 pounds of gold in that ark. So at today's value, that's at least $2 million worth of gold. So this is a very valuable object. There's a ton of detail about how it was made, what it weighs, all of that. But there's also a lot of detail about how you are supposed to move this thing. Exodus 25, 12 through 14. Cast four rings for it and place them on its four feet. Two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. Make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark in order to carry the ark with them. So the first thing Uzzah got wrong. The ark is supposed to be carried by hand, by the poles. And I hope you could see them in that picture. Numbers 4, 5 through 6 says, Whenever the camp is to move on, Aaron and his sons are to go in, take down the screening curtain, and cover the ark of the testimony. They are to place this covering made of fine leather, spread a blue cloth on top, and insert its poles. So that was the second thing that they did wrong. The ark wasn't covered. And we know it wasn't covered because he probably wouldn't have been able to touch it if it was covered. Finally, Numbers 4.15 says, Aaron and his sons are to finish covering the holy objects and their equipment whenever the camp is to move. The Kohathites will come and carry them, but they are not to touch the holy objects or they will die. So what did God really say about the ark? He said, cover it up, carry it by the poles, but whatever you do, please do not touch the ark or you will die. What David and Uzzah didn't realize was there is no new way to do this. God does not seek from us innovation. He seeks obedience right? It's only our arrogance that we think, I've got an idea, a plan, or an outcome that Almighty God has not already thought of. There's no new way to do this. And there's an important lesson here for the contemporary church. Because the real work of God, as far as we have a role in it, is obedience. It takes effort. The transportation of the ark took effort. We read in Acts chapter 2, that thousands of people get saved in one day. People's eternity forever changed. But the Great Commission of the church says, go, therefore, and make disciples. And I can't find anywhere in the Bible where it says, thousands of disciples were added to the church in one day. Because the process of disciple-making takes time. It takes effort. It takes community. It takes commitment. It takes time with God's word. 
you have to know what he really says. It takes obedience. And I think our instinct as the church is we want things to happen fast. We want it to be a show. We want to be entertained. Perhaps we want it to look like David's parade, right? Guitars, drums, thousands of people. But the reality of the situation is this. Disciple-making, our commission, is probably going to look more like a few Levites carrying the ark. Two or four people, one step at a time, reading God's word, being obedient to study and prayer, one step at a time. Disciple-making is probably going to look like a few Levites carrying the ark of God. It's probably going to look a lot more like that than David's parade. There's no new way to make disciples. Our English word discipline comes from the word disciple. So to be a disciple, we have to have some discipline. And I love all the extras that we have here. We have the lights and the electric drums and all of this. It's a wonderful place to worship God. But none of this means anything unless we keep the first things first. We have to draw close to God through reading his word, through prayer, through fellowship, through sharing meals together. We have to draw close to God because we know that proximity to God, closeness to God, is a place where you get blessed. So I want to ask you again, did God really say? And the only way to know what God says is to be in your Bible. We have to deal with passages that make us feel good, and we have to deal with passages that make us feel bad. Some passages put the fear of God in us, and that's okay sometimes. Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14 says, In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd, but beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this is for all of humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this is for all humanity. And the commandment for the church, go and make disciples. And we have one more difficult passage to look at this morning before I let you go. And it, it's a difficult passage because we read that our Savior, God's only Son, was hanging on a tree. And God let that happen. John 19 says, After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is 
finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Did God really say, it is finished? Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that the wrath of God has been satisfied by what Jesus did on the cross? He said it. He said, it is finished. Jesus got the sin out of the way. He did that. You had to do no heavy lifting to secure your salvation. God did all the work. All you had to do was accept it. But now we're in this situation where we have to ask ourselves, now what? Like, I'm saved. Now what? And I hope what you're, you're hearing me, because this isn't about works. This isn't about your resume. God, I did this. God, I prayed that. You put your cover letter on the sheet. You go to heaven and you say, this is what I did. I don't think God saved us just so we can sit in the waiting room of life and wait till we die. We're not supposed to sit around and wait for heaven. And when I got saved, that question bothered me for a long time. Okay, I'm saved. Now what? What do I do? The sin is out of the way. What do I do? The burdens of the law, which we couldn't keep anyway, they're out of the way. The wrath of God is out of the way. So what's left? Jesus said, go. Jesus said, go and make disciples. And that's why I am so excited about what's happening after I'm done. Because this church has made a decision that disciple making in this growth cycle is where we want to be. We want to make good on our end of the commission. Because we're saved. Now what? Now what? God gave Adam a job, right? First thing he did, he said, Adam, you're going to tend the field, you can do this. You get saved, now you have a job. It has nothing to do with your salvation, it's go and make disciples. And this process of becoming a disciple, it's not, I'm telling you right now, it's not going to look like David's parade. That's not what it's going to look like. That's probably what your salvation looked like, but that's not what disciple making looks like. It's probably going to look more like a few Levites carrying this golden chest down the road one step at a time. And I want to stress that this work of disciple-making, it's not a bleak vision. We are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what he did. But becoming a disciple, that's a privilege. You get to be a disciple. You get to disciple other people. When you're carrying the ark of God, you are so close to him. You're not just a spectator. It's a place of blessing. So here's my prayer for you this morning, okay? That the people of God would pick up the ark again. That as a church, we're going to dig in to what the Bible has to say and find out what did God really say. And I hope as a church, together, all of us, I'm in, I hope you are, that we're going to go and make disciples. Amen? Father, I thank you for this day. And I thank you for this group of people. Lord, I pray that when some of us move into this live class, that we would get this sense of how important it is to you to be a part of disciple making. And Lord, I just want to pray a special blessing over all my brothers and sisters that are here today that they will have a week where they are just filled with your spirit, that they'll have an insatiable desire to dig into what you have to say, and that you will go and make 
disciples. And we thank you for everything and all of your blessings. In Jesus' holy name, amen.